0: Forty-three years ago tonight is October 14th. Forty-three years ago was 1979. And a man named John Piper, some of you may have heard of or know. I've been working with him now for almost 20 years. John Piper says, On that night, he felt irretrievably called to pastoral ministry. He was on sabbatical after teaching six years at Bethel College in St. Paul, Minnesota, and he was studying Romans chapter 9. And later on, when he was reflecting back on that season in the fall of 1979, he said this, this is in 2002, about 1979. As I studied Romans 9 day after day, I began to see a God so majestic, and so free, and so absolutely sovereign, that my analysis merged into worship. And the Lord said, in effect, I will not simply be analyzed, I will be adored. I will not simply be pondered, I will be proclaimed. My sovereignty is not simply to be scrutinized, It is to be heralded. It is not grist for the mill of controversy. It is gospel for sinners who know that their only hope is the sovereign triumph of God's grace over their rebellious will. 43 years ago tonight. So in 2019, on the 40th anniversary, of John's October 14th sense of call to the pastorate out of the academy, Justin Taylor published an article at Desiring God that was called This Word Must Be Preached. You can look it up at the DesiringGod.org site. This Word Must Be Preached, which quotes extensively from the 1800-word journal that John wrote that night. So if you wonder, what did his call to the pastorate look like? It looked like him writing out on nine pages, longhand, 1800 words as he wrestled uh, with this and, and felt a decisive sense of call. The reason I mention it is because it relates to our second session here tonight. Three things from the journal entry that night. First, Justin, in his article, makes this comment, it is remarkable how realistic John was that night. He knew himself well. That's a preamble to this quote. John says, I know, really know, I would despair as a pastor. So He's he's writing this, he's going back and forth and wrestling. I know I would despair as a pastor. I would despair that my people are not where I want them to be. I would despair at ruptured study and writing goals. I would despair at barren administrative details. But then he asked himself, "Who shall shepherd the flock of God? People who love barrenness? People who feel no flame to study God and write it out? People who weep not over the tares and the choking wheat? Is the criterion for judging one's fitness for the ministry that one feels no pain in the mechanics of running a church? Is the calling so managerial in our day that the word burning to be spoken and lived and applied is no qualification? Second quote, another one from John's journal, where he contrasts himself with his father. His father was a traveling evangelist, would go somewhere, give one message and go, or do a series of messages and go. John wrote this, my heart is not in one-time shots or one-week shots. I am not a gifted evangelist. My heart leans hard to regularity of feeding. That's the work of Pastor Elders. That's so relevant. That's what we're going to talk about in the second session. Regularity of feeding the flock. He continues, I believe little in the injection method to health. This is 1979. He was not commenting on COVID. I believe in the long, steady diet of rich food in surroundings of love. That's what the call was for him regularity of feeding of people of caring for a particular local church third then from this article about 1979 Justin comments about John that he had a hunger to be the direct instrument of God's word for John that meant being a local church pastor not a seminary professor and we need seminary professors Thank God for them. But for John, he felt a sense of calling to the local church full-time. He wanted to be, he said, a vessel of God's word in the church. And so he left the academy for the pastorate. He became a preacher. But, emphatically, he did not cease to be a teacher He was a teacher in the academic setting and he was a teacher in the church because pastors and elders in the local church are teachers. The lead office in the local church is a teaching office, which is what our second session tonight is going to focus on along with another qualification. So we're going to look of the 15 elder qualifications in 1 Timothy 3, we're going to focus on two. It's two very central ones. Two very important ones. Because these two correlate with the two main tasks of the pastors and elders. The two main tasks are to feed the flock and lead the flock. And the two qualifications that correspond with feeding and leading are able to teach and sober minded. So that's what's going to be our focus here in the second session. It's been the first part on able to teach. What does that mean? Practically, how does it mean? How do we pursue it? And then sober-mindedness, and what's its value, and how does it relate to prayer and the work of eldering? And then we'll finish with a couple, with a few very practical thoughts on how might I pursue these? I don't think either one of these qualifications are static. They are the kinds of virtues and skills and desires in which we grow. So there's no pretense that either you're a teacher or you're not. Either you're sober-minded or you're not. Praise God. Because we all need help with these. And so we'll look at those here tonight and finish with how we might grow and improve. Let me pray for us for our second session. So Father in heaven, We come now and ask for your help in looking at two very important, among 15 important, but two very important qualifications, requirements, and daily attributes and virtues of those who are in the office of pastor and elder in the local church. So would you help us to get our minds around these qualifications and virtues biblically? And would you help us see an encouraging pathway forward to grow for all of us? I pray especially for the guys, younger guys in the room who aspire to the work. Would you help give them an encouraging pathway? Would would they be hopeful about growing in time by the power of your spirit in these attributes? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So perhaps you can imagine a scenario in which a man is being considered for eldership, and the elders are gathered in council, and the man and a, a question comes, uh, Is this man able to teach? Let's just say that the man is is not known in the local church for for being a teacher. Uh, but the elder who's advocating for his candidacy speaks up and he speaks of, his, you know, it's, it's not his strength. he's He's rarely willing to do public speaking, but if you put a gun to his head, stop. such a minimalistic understanding of able to teach is not what paul means in 1st timothy 3 rather what he's after and what we should be after and what we all should aspire to something you grow in is a more maximalist assertion he's the kind of man who will hardly stop teaching even if you put a gun to his head. That's what we're looking for. Pastors and elders, paid and unpaid, full-time and lay, are to be teachers in various ways. Don't think about preaching to thousands. I'm not talking about preaching to thousands. I'm talking about the various manifestations of teaching in the life of the church. Able to teach in my English and I'm sure Nick's doing a great job of translating that into French. This is tricky. We talked about this ahead of time. Uh, it comes from one Greek word, didactikos. single Greek word, didactikos. And we might say, I would say, that this is the most central of the elder qualifications in 1 Timothy 3. It's listed eight out of 15. You know, 15 total, it's eight. That's right in the middle. I don't know if anybody in here is into chiasms. You can see chiasms all over the Bible. And you haven't done anything really impressive if you found a chiasm, because they're everywhere. The main thing is, what does it mean? What's being communicated by the chiasm? But in this chiasm, in the middle, eight out of the 15 is able to teach. And the list of elder qualifications in Titus 1 culminates with a longer expression in a complex sentence about this qualification of being able to teach. We might also say that able to teach is the most distinctive qualification of the elders. It's the single qualification that most plainly sets the elders apart from the assisting office of the deacons. You have the lead office, the teaching office, and an assisting office called deacon. And that's able to teach. That sets them apart. Or, or perhaps even better, in my English, apt to teach or prone to teach. You'll see various renderings of this in, in different translations. Such teaching bent or ability in pastors is not to be minimal, as we've said, but I think to be as maximal as it can be. We want the kind of man who will hardly stop teaching even if a gun is put to his head. As he learns, he wants to teach. As he studies, he thinks about teaching. He breathes teaching. We might say he's a teacher at heart. He loves to teach, and with all the planning that that requires, and the discipline it requires, the patience it requires, the energy, the exposure to criticism that good teaching requires... He's willing to embrace those costs because he wants to teach. A pastor who is didactic costs, able to teach, is not just able if necessary, but rather eager when possible. He's bent to teach, not only able in terms of his skill, but eager in terms of his proclivity. Now, I know this is the hardest section I have got here in a bilingual context. And Nick's going to try with me, and we'll see if we can do this. See if you can track. Because we don't have a good word that corresponds in English. Maybe French has one. I don't know. We don't have a good corresponding word in English. I'm going to try to work on that for just a minute. In English, we have the word didactic, built on the Greek didache, which means teaching, but we don't have an easy equivalent for the Greek adjective didaktikos. So maybe we need something more like didactive, rather than didactic. Didactic's already been used for a certain semantic range. So we would need like didactive or teachative. I'm making that up, teachative. We have the word in English talkative. Hopefully you know that one. Someone who's fond of or given to talking. Teachative would mean someone who's fond of or given to teaching. The point is that New Testament leaders, the pastor elders, are teachers. Christianity is a teaching movement. From the very beginning, Jesus was the consummate teacher and he appointed apostles and discipled those men to be teachers who discipled others. And after his ascension, Those apostles spoke on Christ's behalf and led the early church through teaching. And when their living voices died, their writings became the church's ongoing pole star with the Old Testament for teaching. And so, fitting with the very nature of the Christian faith, Christ appoints men who are teachative Didactikos, which entails at least three important realities we would be wise to keep in mind today. So I got three things, three E's that I think are important to keep in mind with trying to identify and cultivate the ability to teach in the eldership and pastorate. One is equipped to teach. Two is effective at teaching. Three is is eager to teach. Say a word about each one of those. Number one, equipped to teach. First of all, a man may be off the charts teachative and be nothing but a liability to his local church. (laughs) If he is not sufficiently equipped in sound doctrine... I told Francois I was going to have a Simbeck point. This is the Simbeck point. You know, take out your checkbooks, make a donation to Simbeck. This is the point. Equipped to teach. Pastors must be equipped. The miracle of the new birth does not imply any instantaneous miracles of equipping for leadership. Now, we might grant that there is a kind of miracle status to any sinner who comes to Christ and 10 years later is ready to teach in the church. That is a kind of long-term miracle, to have sound theology. But it's a long-term miracle that is worked out through diligent training over time, not the endowment of a mere moment. 50 years ago, I don't pretend you would, have, you would know of this book. Uh, an American named Walter Hendrickson wrote a book called Disciples Are Made, Not Born. Teachers are made, trained, not born. Jesus spoke about a righteous scribe being trained for the kingdom of heaven. He brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old in Matthew 13. A disciple is not above his teacher, Jesus said. But everyone when he is fully trained will be like his teacher. Luke 6:40. To become a Christian requires no training. Just faith. Now to the one who does not work, but believes in him who who justifies the ungodly, his faith is not reckoned as wages, but as gift. Romans 5, 4. But one does not become a teacher in the church by faith alone, or holy, or sanctified by faith alone. Rather, grace Not only justifies us by faith alone, apart from works, but grace, Titus 2 says, trains us. Grace has a training function in power, in sanctification, to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. And in those whom Christ gives to his church as pastors and teachers, he sees to their being trained in the sound words of the faith. That's 1 Timothy 4, 6. You have been trained, Paul says to Timothy, in the words of the faith. Training is necessary for maturity, Hebrews 5.14. And training requires the discipline of persisting in uncomfortable moments, even painful moments, for the reward that's set before us, Hebrews 12.11. So when we emphasize in pastors the necessity of a proclivity and ability to teach, we do not overlook a critical component of Christian teachers training. Pastors must be equipped in sound doctrine to teach sound doctrine. It doesn't happen without some work. Now, there are all different levels of training. I'll talk about that later in the practical points. I'm not saying that every lay pastor needs to have a four-year seminary degree, but some curriculum of training, some process of training to be equipped in sound doctrines. That's the first, equipped to teach. Second, effective at teaching. The pastor elders of the church must be effective teachers. That is, they must be skilled in some degree relative to their context that is able in the sense of good, effective. It's not enough that they want to teach and they've been trained in sound doctrine, but they're not any good at teaching. That's not enough. Then the church becomes a sitting duck or unprotected flock. If the pastors aren't effective teachers in their context, it is only a matter of time until the wolves carry the day and feast on the lambs. And so Paul says, as his culminating qualification in the Titus 1 list, that the pastor elder must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so equipped, he's been taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. That is, he must know the trustworthy word. That's the gospel. He must know it deeply and well and be trained in it and its extensions and applications and genuinely hold firm to it. That's not teaching yet. It's training. Then begins the work of teaching in its twofold sense. One, feeding the flock. That's give instruction in sound doctrine, feeding the flock through sound teaching. And two, defending the flock, rebuke those who contradict it. And if the pastors and elders are poor or ineffective teachers, then the sheep will go hungry or get eaten. So pastors and elders as a team, this is on the team. Think about the team. Pastors and elders as a team must be effective teachers in their particular context. That is, effective in their particular local church where they're called. That might be very different in a rural region of Quebec versus downtown Montreal they need not compete with the world's best orators on popular podcasts or on television don't let that be the standard for effective but they must be effective teachers of their people in their context when push comes to shove the pastors must get the job done or the wolves take the sheep So, equipped to teach, effective at teaching. Third, eager to teach. And now we're coming back to where we started, which is the heart of the teaching qualification, and that's the heart of a teacher. That's what we're looking for in elders the heart of a teacher. We need men who are eager to teach, not just men willing to have their arm bent to fill a slot once in a while. But men who are teachers Paul calls them the pastor teachers in Ephesians 4:11 Remember your leaders he says in Hebrews 13:17 Hebrews 13:7 Remember your leaders those who spoke to you the word of God Hebrews could assume that the leaders were those who spoke the word of God because their leaders were teachers That's what they did. Didn't have like leaders who didn't speak and leaders who did. Their leaders spoke to them the word of God. Because Christianity is a word critical, teaching critical faith. The leaders teach and good teachers in time and with sufficient maturation come to lead. The pastor elders in are not only called to lead or govern, but first and foremost to labor in preaching and teaching. And since the work, at least at its heart, is the work of teaching, we want men who want to teach. We want them to be eager to do it. And brothers, this can be cultivated. It's not just you have it or you don't. The eagerness or the skill. This, like all the elder qualifications, are meant to be cultivated. You can grow in it. Such didactive or teachative men think like teachers, not judges. Think the different way that a teacher thinks versus the way a judge thinks. Their orientation toward the church is not mainly as one rendering verdicts but envisioning possibilities, providing fresh perspective and information, faithfully teaching the scriptures, making persuasive arguments, patiently reviewing and restating and illustrating, and praying for God's miraculous work of life change. One really important text to go with 1 Timothy 3.2 and Didacticos is 2 Timothy two, twenty-four and 25. It, it, this text is remarkable. It, is it not amazing that when Paul speaks into how Timothy should carry himself in the midst of a conflict in the Ephesian church, he says this, Timothy, pastors, elders, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach. There it is. Patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. So look at what company, able to teach, keeps in 2 Timothy 2. Not quarrelsome, but kind, patient, gentle. Not apart from correction, gentle in correcting the opponents, he says, there's plenty of correction to happen. But there's also a gentleness in the correcting of opponents from someone who is teachative rather than quarrelsome or acting as a judge. There's quite a contrast throughout the pastoral epistles between quarrelsomeness and teaching. Paul doesn't think you do both at the same time. He thinks there are quarrelsome people who need to be handled not with quarrelsomeness. They need to be handled with teaching. And there is quarrelsomeness that the pastor leaders of the church and Timothy should not stoop to. Quarrelsomeness is different than teaching. It is a different orientation on others, on the conversation, on the issue, on the doctrine, and on public speech. Now, pastors are not only teachers. As overseers, they watch out for the flock. As elders, they counsel and guide the people. As shepherds, they muster their collective forethought and envision where to go next for the church, for green pastures and still waters, and lead the sheep in that direction. And they wield the comfort of the rod for the sheep to crack the skulls of wolves so not only does Christ call his church with leaders not only does he gift his church with leaders who have such a proclivity being teachative but he also strange as it may seem puts the teachers in charge ever thought about that He made pastors to be teachers, and the teachers are in the lead office of the church. What in the world was Jesus doing? put the teachers in charge? Do you know what an idealistic group teachers can be as a group? Idealistic, wanting things to go a certain way, not efficient, like the business world. But, he said, the leaders should be the elders who lead and feed. Teaching and oversight are paired. 1 Thessalonians 5, 12, we'll see that in a minute. 1 Timothy 5, 17, 1 Timothy 2, 12, controversial text, provides that particularly memorable coupling of the elders teaching with exercising authority in the gathered assembly of the church. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. And then what does he do three verses later? Qualification for elders. He's setting up the eldership, teaching and having authority, correspond, going together, exercising authority through the teaching, entrusted to the elders in the gathered assembly. So amazingly then, the risen Christ, in building his church on his terms, not the world's, is so audacious as to appoint teachers to lead and exercise authority. Even as idealistic and inefficient as teachers can be, but it is so fitting because Christianity is a teaching faith. And this confirms what perhaps a few sharp minds may have suspected all along, that Jesus is far more interested in the church's effectiveness than in its efficiency. So pastors teach. They are at heart teachers. The plurality of elders is, in an important sense, a team of teachers who also govern. The call to pastoral ministry is not for specialized administrators of large departments, nor is it a call for brawlers and pugilists Fighters? More apt to quarrel than to teach? Pastors teach and are the kind of men who will graciously hardly cease, even if you put a gun to their head. Now, what are we to say about their governing? The governing role of the teaching. If able to teach is the most central and distinctive qualification of the elders, pastors, sober-minded might be the most underrated or underappreciated. I like doing this with my eldership classes at Bethlehem College and Seminary, trying to give a superlative to each of the 15 qualifications. My superlative for sober-minded is most underrated. So I want to increase the rating in your eyes here in these next few minutes about sober-mindedness. I remember on several occasions, sitting around the table of elders, as a young elder, brainstorming names for future additions to the council, and and by God's grace, the voicing of some names drew out immediate praise, amen, oh, he'd be a good elder, that brother would be a great addition to the council, and sometimes a name would be mentioned. And there was largely enthusiasm, but some might might speak up with a minor reservation or misgiving. On occasion, it seemed as if many of us intuited with a certain person's name, something's not right. Um, It's hard to say. Doesn't quite resonate with the council. We do not quite know what to say. What I came to learn over time is that I think often the language that we were groping for was right there in the elder qualifications. Sober-minded. It's a remarkable turn of events, as we said, that Jesus put the teachers in charge of the local church. However, this is where we come, especially to sober-minded. Jesus does not call these pastor-elders to teaching alone alone. He calls the pastor elders under the gathered assembly of the church, annually, quarterly, whenever that happens in the church meetings in a Baptist context, to lead the people in the day-in, day-out life of the church and through the the church's formal teaching. And this requires that the pastor elders be both individually and collectively sober-minded. As I said... Of the 15 qualifications, sober-mindedness might be the most underrated. Not only is teaching central to the pastor's work, but also, as we saw in 1 Peter 5, exercising oversight is critical in the work of the pastors. Pastor elders, in 1 Thessalonians 5:12, not only labor among you, which probably has feeding and teaching aspects to it labor among you but are over you in the Lord that relates to the oversight to the governing the leading they both feed the congregation and lead so 1st Timothy 3 4 to 5 the elder must manage his own household well why is that because as a team the elders are charged with caring for God's household the church. Not only are pastors those who preach and teach well and are thus deserving of honor and double honor, that is remuneration, payment, when laboring at the work as a breadwinning vocation, but also as governors. That is, the elders who rule well. 1 Timothy five seventeen. He talks about the elders who rule well, govern well, lead well. So they teach and rule, or lead, govern. And to do so requires a kind of spiritual acuity, what the New Testament calls sober-mindedness. Men who are sober-minded are level-headed, And balanced. They are responsive to the needs of the flock without being reactive. They're not given to extremes. They're not suckers for myths and speculation and conspiracy theories. They're not dragged into silly controversies. Rather, they're able to discern. What emphases, what preoccupations would compromise the stewardship? We're stewards. The stewardship that's at the heart of the ministry. And they stay grounded in what's most important. They keep the gospel of first importance as their center. Gospel of first importance, 1 Corinthians 15.3. And they're able, like increasingly few modern adults, to keep their head in all situations. That's how the NIV translates 1 Timothy 4-5. Keep your head, Timothy, in all situations. That is, be sober-minded. Together, the team of sober-minded elders is able to navigate the complicated challenges in local church life, like church size dynamics. Church is really different at 20 and 200. And generational dynamics as many churches are beginning to, as the baby boom generation ages. And perhaps most of all, they're able to navigate issues of timing. Issues of timing are notorious in the work of pastors and elders. Many people, not only old but young, many young guys can spot the problems. We don't need lots of help spotting the problems. It's easy to spot the problems. But pastors and elders are those with the sober-mindedness and the accompanying superpower of patience to know how and when to address the challenges. And a fellow pastor in the Twin Cities named Dan Miller, who wrote an article at Nine Marks, on the superpower of pastors. It was all about patience. It relates very much to sober-mindedness. Issues of timing are so important. Sober-minded pastors and elders, together as a group, figure out how to give Caesar his little tiny due without robbing Christ of any of his. That's for Americans. Together, they keep the church on its mission, keep the gospel central, and demonstrate that the essence of leadership is not personal privilege and preference, as we talked about in the first session, but it's self-giving, self-humbling, self-sacrificing for the church's good. Sober-mindedness, without doubt, it's critical for teaching. You need to know what to teach, when to teach, how to teach, but such spiritual acuity especially maps on to this call to govern or lead in the context of the church and the untiring vigilance that it requires. Several texts in the New Testament pair together sober-mindedness with watchfulness. 1 Peter 5 does it. Verse 8 and 1 Peter 5. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. That connection between keeping watch over the flock, being sober-minded, it's also in 1 Thessalonians 5, 6. Acts 20, 28, as we saw earlier, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Hebrews thirteen seventeen, the pastor elders are those who are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. And so they must be sober-minded, Paul says in 1 Timothy 3, 2. In fact, always, sober-minded. Always watchful, always sober-minded, 2 Timothy 4, 5. Right after the great preach the word passage to Timothy, always be sober-minded. In Acts chapter 6, we're not yet dealing with pastors and deacons properly, but with apostles and what's called the seven the ones that are appointed, they're called the seven there. Seven were appointed to assist the apostles. But we can see a kind of analog here for what was to come in local congregations. As the seven were appointed to serve tables, that the apostles might not give up the teaching of the word, so local church pastor elders have a particular calling to lead and feed the flock. That is, devote ourselves to the word and prayer. Word In prayer, we teach the Word to feed the church, and sober-minded men pray to God, and take counsel with each other, and lead the church in the ups and downs of the raging seas of life. It will not be enough if we have balanced thinkers as pastors who are prayerless, and Besides, the prayerlessness would betray the lack of sober-mindedness. Nor would it be enough to have prayerful men without sober minds. We need both prayer and prudence in our leaders. Men with sober minds who are prayerful. Just as we need both leading and teaching, And Christ appoints that his local church leaders should be such prayerful, sober-minded teachers. And so you might say, well, that's all well and good, but what about the gaffes in my own sober-mindedness that I'm aware of? Not to mention all the ones I'm not even aware of. How do I get more sober-minded? How do I work on that? whether you're already a pastor elder or aspiring to the office, how might I get a more sober mind? The good news is that sobering our minds is part of what the Holy Spirit loves to do as he goes to work on God's people. He's doing this all the time in Christians, sobering their minds And in particular, this is work he does over time through God's word. Word and spirit go together. You don't just get a flash of sober mindedness by the spirit walking in the wilderness. He sobers our minds over time in formation with the word. However naturally balanced or level headed you are, the word of God is critical in giving us real balance in a destabilizing world and sobering us up to what really matters in God's economy. Sober-mindedness is not a miracle God does in just a moment, but it's the effect of a thousand quiet early morning miracles over his word day after day, year after year. In the days to come, just as in the last 2,000 years, the church needs men who know how to keep their head under pressure, whether that's in conflict or controversy, like we've been through with COVID, or if it's just the normal steady state life of the church. We need level-headed, wise, spiritually and emotionally intelligent leaders, rather than those who are impulsive, imbalanced, and reactive, because pastor elders are not just God-appointed teachers, but God-appointed governors. And such men, the Spirit loves to produce through years of quiet scripture meditation and real-life accountability in the local church. And such men, years in the making, the risen Christ loves to give to His church, to feed it through faithful, effective teaching and guide it through patient composed reasonable team leadership which leads to a concluding focus here for us on how young aspiring pastor elders might go about pursuing growth in their teaching so we just talked about the central role of the spirit through the word in creating sober minds how about teaching? How might I go about practically pursuing growth in teaching? i got a very short list here for you. And what I'm assuming in this list of six is eagerness. I'm guessing that eagerness is asking the question. I'm somewhat eager, maybe not acutely eager, mildly eager to teach, so how could I grow in my teaching? That's the assumption. Here's my very short list of six. Number one, no The word himself. That is Jesus. Know the word himself. Capital W, word. Know him. How? In the word itself. The gospel. How? Through the word itself. Scripture. So, know the word, Jesus. In the word, the gospel. Through the word, scripture. We're back again to read, study, meditate on the Bible, and now we emphasize all the Bible. We've emphasized meditation. Slow, deep, unhurried, and no no more hurried, but also the need for breadth in our traversing of the grounds of Scripture. Those who lead and aspire to lead the church would be wise to have all the biblical text passed before their eyes, every calendar year. It's not a mandate. You're not in sin if you don't do it. It's a wisdom suggestion. Obviously, there will be many passages you not only read, but study and meditate on and teach on, perhaps multiple times in a year. But reading through the Bible with some plan each year at least gets the biblical text to pass before you each year. And as you do, you're increasingly putting the Scripture together as a whole so that your teaching will grow out of a balanced understanding, a growing, balanced understanding of Scripture. And all the while, you're knowing and enjoying Jesus as you pour yourselves into the Scripture. So know the Word Himself, that is Jesus. Number two, self educate in the information age. This is a step in equipping is not the only step in equipping. Leverage the amazing availability of books. Thank you, Daniel. Amazing, that the the books being translated into French, the books coming off the press. An amazing wealth of resources that we have. Messages. (laughs) We were so excited when the internet came along in the late 90s, early 2000s. Oh, preaching, MP3s, I can listen. So many people have forgotten about the audio online. We're so used to the next video, the next social media feed moving around. There is glorious audio treasures still on the internet, not being as accessed, I don't think, you know, anecdotally from the stories I hear, like there once were. Books, messages, essays. There's a lot of thin garbage online, and there's a lot of meaty, helpful essays. Look for trusted sources online. You can find healthy, strong, meaty essays in the right places online. Perhaps some limited exposure to social media would help you be aware of new books and essays and articles. But I would highly caution you against Any more than a pretty modest, controlled portion of social media, if you're pursuing being a better teacher and sober mindedness. Beware the radicalizing effects of social media. Algorithms It is now almost clearly public knowledge, are no friend of social of of sober mindedness. Algorithms are no friend of sober-mindedness. Number three, now to complement the use of the information age, pursue some formal program of training. Some program. For some, it will be Sembeck. It will be a more formal program over years. For others, it may be a far more modest program. If you're in a lay pastorate, it may be a far less extensive, more modest program. But this is a distinct distinct step here from self-educating because we're talking about some kind of curriculum or course of study designed by someone other than yourself. So that you would develop knowledge and skill and fill in areas that you've never uh, gravitated to studying on your own it's helpful to have that filled in by somebody who knows what they're doing and can give you some formal program of study. Perhaps the elders of your local church. Number four, take what at bats you can and make them count. Now, I shouldn't say at bats, should I? Because this is, this is the nation of hockey and the Expos left. And so maybe many of you don't have any place of reference for at bats. <laughs> It's a baseball term. So take what opportunities you can and make them count. Now we're talking about how to grow in effectiveness as a teacher, which grows over time. And the Spirit loves to help this, and it grows with hard work. And you need hundreds of of opportunities, ask the established pastors here or that you know. You need hundreds of opportunities, not dozens. So, growing and teaching is a life skill. It's like singing, not like athletics. You know, like athletics, hey, make the most of it while you can, because you're going to peak in your twenties, and it's all downhill from here. That's <laughs> athletics. Singing, you don't do your best singing in your twenties. Or your 30s, maybe not even your 40s, maybe not even your 50s. Singing is a life skill that you build, you hone over time. So is teaching. So is preaching. You don't do your best preaching in your 20s or 30s. I sure hope not in your 40s. I hope it's more like 50s and 60s. And sometimes when I hear John Piper in recent months, I think, well, it's I think it's 70s. So brothers who give a teaching in your church, in a small group, maybe even in a pulpit, and you feel like, oh, I've got so long, such a long way to go. Be encouraged. That's normal. We all got a long way to go. This is a life skill. You can grow in this. You can develop. And whatever humble opportunities emerge, we need somebody to teach the kids on Sunday in the Sunday school. Make the most of it. Hundreds of teaching opportunities to grow in a variety of settings. So make the most of those opportunities. And when you have them, make them count. Two final ones to finish. Number five, always keep learning and be ready. It's a lifelong learner point, it's a vigilance point. Like we said a few minutes ago, after Paul says, preach the word. In 2 Timothy 4, two, the very next charge is be ready in season and out of season. This is, this is part of the calling for pastors and elders. It, it's not a job with time off from spiritual vigilance. There may be time off from the work, time off from the pulpit, from teaching a class, having a vacation, that should happen, yes. But in the Christian life, there's no... Pause or vacation or holding pattern for spiritual vigilance. Then Paul, Paul says it again to Timothy in verse 5 as we already saw. Always be sober minded. You can prepare yourself now for that. We'll take a vacation from spirituality, from pursuing God in prayer and in his word. And in addition to this, there's, a, there's the opportunity here to learn and grow. In 1 Timothy 4, After just telling Timothy that he should devote himself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching, this is what Paul says, 1 Timothy 4.15, Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Scripture, exhortation, teaching. Grow in these things, Timothy. You can grow in them, progress in them. and Your people will see that. You can. God made you that way. The Spirit works that way. God's Word works that way on you. Grow in them. Progress. Our people ought to see our progress, our growth, in all areas of our lives. Husbanding. Fathering. Friendship. But particularly in our teaching. There's an opportunity there. And there's an opportunity there in moving toward the pastorate, to the eldership, if you aspire to grow. And I hope this is encouraging, that you can grow in your teaching. It is not fundamentally a gift you have or do not. I think that is often the way the qualification is read, that this man has a gift or he doesn't have a gift. I do not think that's what it is in 1 Timothy 3 and across the New Testament. Teaching is something that can be cultivated. Number six, rejoice more in being saved than in being a fruitful teacher. Their our last point, this is where we end. And we come back to Luke ten twenty. Brothers, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you. In your teaching, as you have opportunities, as you take at bats, as you have one that went well, as you're encouraged about your teaching and your growth, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you in your teaching, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. I don't think Jesus means this absolutely. As if there's not any holy joy to be had in faithful, fruitful teaching. There is. That's why it's a danger to be warned of, that's why it's a threat for idolatry. We dare not let the joy of teaching the faith eclipse the joy of the faith itself. Brothers, rejoice most that your names are written in heaven. Whether you're ever a pastor or elder or teacher or not. Being a Christian is 10,000 times more important and more sweet than being a pastor or teacher. So let's pray. Father in heaven, Thank you for sustaining us here this evening through two long sessions. And I pray that you would accomplish your work. I pray that to the degree we were faithful to your word, that your spirit would go to work on our souls, inform our minds, inform our perspectives, shape our hearts. I do pray in particular for brothers in this room who perhaps feel discouraged about their teaching. It's hard. They feel like there's a long journey ahead to be the kind of teacher that will be equipped and effective and cultivate their own eagerness for the work. Father, I pray you would encourage them, give them hope. You love to raise up teachers over time and through patience and by your word and by the power of your Holy Spirit being shaped in the communities of our local church. And so I pray you would do it. For those brothers here who are pastors, those who are elders, Would you strengthen their hands in the work? Give us afresh a vision for laboring for the joy of our people. And Father, would you yourself in the person of your Son, in your gospel, by the power of your Spirit, through your scriptures, strengthen and stoke our joy for the ministry. We want to benefit our people by being happy in the work, not groaning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.